Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, where we will see that the apostles did not always have such a victorious attitude uh, to life, but were very discouraged and downhearted. Luke 24, verses 1 through 11. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Let's pray. Father God, it is so easy for us to uh, fail to believe the mighty deeds that you are doing around the world, to fail to believe your word. And I pray that uh, you would raise up within our church a victorious faith, such as we have sung about uh, from that uh, psalm which speaks of the victory of your people in every age. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give to us the uh, victory that First John speaks about, that everyone who was born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Uh, we submit our hearts before you as we listen to your word, and we pray that the responses of our hearts, uh, the meditations of our minds would be acceptable in your sight. Uh, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the national heroes in Spanish history is a knight by the name of Rodrigo Diaz, otherwise known as El Cid. Uh, he lived from 1044 to 1099 A.D. And he really is a hero for Christians, even though there's a lot of mythology that has sprung up around him. Uh, he and his uh, armies were uh, very instrumental in holding back the uh, Islamic hordes that were taking over the uh, continent there. And he did a lot of amazing things. Charlton Heston stars in a movie, 1961 movie called El Cid, that incorporates, you know, some things from history, some things from legend. I guess it makes for a more interesting story that way. But on any version of the story, El Cid and his horse, uh, Babieca, uh, were really incredible. I mean, if you've never read about El Cid and his horse, you've got to read about him. Uh, some of the feats they did were amazing. So it's a story I really enjoy. History tells us that five years before his death, he captured the fortress city of Valencia. And uh, that became a base of operations for him, actually almost like an independent kingdom for him. Uh, and when he died of wounds at the age of 56, his wife continued to fight the Moors until finally they had to vacate the city and go off. But the legend is a lot more interesting than real history on that final 
uh, stage there. It says that when he died, that his wife dressed him up in his clothes and his armor, and along with the help of uh, his generals, they put him onto his faithful steed. They put props all around him so that he'd be erect and holding his lance, looking like he was uh, still alive. And uh, then Babieca led the charge out of uh, Valencia against the Moors. And when the Moors saw him, because everybody recognized this guy, he's just an amazing man. In fact, they were the ones that called him El Cid, uh, the Sir. And uh, uh, they they saw him as being an uh, amazing defender. But when they saw him charging out, according to the legend, they were scared to death. They thought he had been resurrected from the dead. And so they fled to the sea and Spain was uh, saved from the invading, invading hordes. And it does make a kind of a cool story. And uh, according to legend, he had prophesied that, you know, he'd have one more battle after he died. And so this was his last successful battle. But it was all based on a deception. There was no resurrection. And the generals had the last laugh. Uh, by maintaining control. Well, this is actually the accusation that many people have brought against Christianity down through the years. They say the resurrection didn't really occur. Uh, Christianity was a success because the apostles pretended like there was a resurrection. And because everybody believed this ruse, Christianity has been successful. And so all we have in Christianity is a dead leader dressed in, a, in armor, uh, carrying his lance and uh, pretending... Uh, to make advances. And if you turn with me to Matthew 28, we'll see where this theory began to be developed. Very clever uh, argument that was given. Matthew 28 and verse 12, the chief priests um, go to the soldiers who witnessed the resurrection, uh, witnessed the stone being moved away and the angels coming down. And uh, they bribed them with a large sum of money. Then in verse 13, here's the story that these soldiers are supposed to tell, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. Now, it doesn't come as a surprise to me that the priests had to come up with some kind of a desperate story. But it is surprising to me that this lame excuse of a story continues to be propounded. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a new book that came out, you know, that uh, gave the story. So it, it does surprise me people continue to um, uh, spout the story. Now, this morning, we're going to be seeing that this interpretation is absolutely impossible. It doesn't fit the packs. And um, we're not going to look so much at the proofs of the resurrection as we are on the difference that his resurrection made in the disciples, because there had to be a certain attitude among the generals, as it were, for this to have been able to be successful if it was a ruse. Please turn back to Luke 24. And I want you to notice, first of all, the demoralized state that these disciples were in on that first resurrection Sunday. Now, they felt deeply the loss of Christ. Now, El Cid himself was used to involving his generals and his people and trying to figure out surprise attacks, all kinds of different creative strategies. And uh, the generals had come up with this. They were very bold, very courageous themselves. But this was not the case with, with the disciples. Look at verse 21. But we were hoping 
that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And I want you to notice those words. We were hoping. Their hopes had been dashed. Uh, They were stunned by the turn of events and they were in no mood for rallying the troops. Instead, what you find in the Gospels is that these disciples were in hiding themselves. They were worried about the Romans coming after them next. And uh, they did not think that they were seeing a body when they looked at Jesus. Uh, They thought they were seeing a spirit. And so this was no El Cid. In fact, Christ had warned them even before he died that uh, this is exactly what was going to happen, that they were going to be demoralized. They were going to be scattered. He knew their nature. And he said, you guys are going to flee. You're not going to fight. Uh, In Mark 14, verse 27, it says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Unlike El Cid's courageous Soldiers, these guys were not really capable of creating an El Cid uh, hoax. They were a disappointed, discouraged, and defeated lot on that first resurrection Sunday. And for me, it would be very difficult to imagine them uh, bringing any kind of campaign that would turn the world upside down if they were just following after a dead body. Now, somebody might object, well, maybe these disciples really were convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. Maybe they hallucinated or maybe they believed the women and their story about Christ having raised. And because they believed it, there was an aura that enabled them to convince others and make this to be a success. Some have given the impression that the women believed from the start and that the apostles were a lot harder to convince. Well, they were the first ones to believe, but all of them uh, were... um, Uh, uh, very uh, skeptical of the resurrection. Look at verses 3 through 8. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So who are these women looking for? Not looking for a resurrected Savior. They're looking for a body because they want to put more embalming spices on it. And when they don't find the body, it says, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. And so the women needed to have uh, convincing, and each one of the disciples needed convincing. Apparently, They were all from the show me state, uh, Missouri, and um, uh, they had a hard time believing what they were being told. So the women go and talk to them. But in verse 11, it says, and their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. And there are people to this day who continue to believe that the resurrection was an idle tale. Uh, They did not do the homework like uh, some other people have done, like Frank Morris. Frank Morris was uh, an an agnostic, and actually he wrote was initially trying to write a book to disprove the resurrection. But after doing research, he came to the firm conviction Jesus must have been raised from the dead. And as he read the scriptures further, he became converted and he wrote a book, Who Moved the Stone?, But uh, there are a lot of people who are not willing to do the hard work. Uh, They're skeptics. And these disciples were skeptics just like Morris was. 
Frank Morris, and uh, they had to be convinced by the evidence. And these disciples are convinced because they see Christ, they handle Him, they talk to Him, Jesus explains the Scriptures to them, they see there's a consistency, a coherency to it all. And Peter went to investigate, verse 12. And then he reports to the followers of Christ. And I want you to look at the results in verses 21 through 26. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They felt the story about the tomb was correct, but they still hadn't bought into the report that the angels had given. And Christ's response is, O foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? The scriptures should have been enough for you to be convinced. Christ was in effect telling them. But despite the fact that there's more evidence and person after person has come to you saying that I have been raised, you still have not come to the conclusion that the scriptures are right. And uh, so take a look at verse 33. Says So they rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Apparently, nobody believes Simon. <laughs> and people uh, uh, here are being told, Hey, Simon's right after all. We saw him with our own two eyes. So anyway, it goes on, they told about the things that had happened on the road and how it was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. The first thing that comes to their minds is not that Simon is right or that Mr. and Mrs. Cleophas are right and that Jesus is actually raised from the dead. No, they think they're seeing a spirit. That couldn't possibly be true, what they told us here. And so it goes on, it says, He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet that the design myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But when they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence." Now, the Gospel of John tells us these disciples, they're really excited. And they go and tell uh, Thomas about this. And Thomas doesn't believe. So as the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas, I think, has been given a bad rap as being doubting Thomas. I hope by now you can see every one of them were doubters. They just were having a hard time being convinced about the resurrection. In Mark 16, the words, they did not believe, almost occurs like a refrain. Let me give you uh, 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 some samples. Mary Magdalene tells them that she saw Christ. And then it says, 
but they did not believe. Verse 11, two others tell them, and Mark says, they did not believe them either. Verse 13, verse 14, it says, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. What was going on here is that God was giving a superabundance of evidence over a period of 40 days to over 500 people. Acts 1.3 says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Can you see, there is no way this could be likened to that El Cid a hoax. You cannot change a demoralized people into charging into the fray if they know they're following after a dead general. There's no way. As one man remarked when he was looking down into the Grand Canyon, something happened here. <laughs> and it did. He is risen. He is alive. And the fact that there is a spiritual Grand Canyon with many infallible proofs cannot be explained away. Now, it's not enough to merely believe that Christ rose from the grave because Satan tells us, I mean, God tells us Satan believes Christ rose from the grave too, right? And it doesn't turn his heart to be non-opposed to Christ. On that first resurrection morning, there were two different reactions among the witnesses of the resurrection. The disciples fell on their knees before Christ. Uh, they worshipped him. Uh, they embraced him. There was a personal, heartfelt connection between them and their Lord. But you know what? The guards witnessed exactly the same thing. They did not worship Christ. They did not fall down before him. For them, it was going on with life as usual. I want you to turn with me again to Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew 28, it tells us that the guards... Uh, were witnesses of the angel moving the large stone away from the grave opening. Uh, they were witnesses of the angels telling them in verse 5. It says, The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, <clears throat> for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. Uh, there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, those guards are so terrified, it says they were paralyzed. It says they became like dead men. God was forcing them to witness all of the events that are going on here. And he does it for a purpose. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, look at verse 11. It says, now, while they, that is the women, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened, all the things. They saw the earthquake. They saw the angel coming down. They saw the stone being rolled away. They saw the angels speaking to the women. And it says they reported all of these things to the, the priests. And yet they did not follow Christ. Okay, that's, that's an amazing thing. Anyway, Matthew goes on. It says, When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying... Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And so here are guards who are reporting the exact opposite of what they know to be true. 
They know what the facts are, but they're reporting something quite different. And I find this uh, very remarkable, despite the fact I know about total depravity. You know, we might be surprised by this and think, how in the world could anybody willfully reject the evidence like this? Uh, how in the world could anybody not believe? And yet the Scripture indicates this is actually an accurate description of the state of every human heart until it is regenerated. Every one of us would be in exactly the same uh, situation. It illustrates total depravity. It illustrates Romans 3, which says there is none who seeks after God. None. Apart from God's grace drawing us, we would not come. And so no one wants to submit to God until their hearts are changed. What was it that made these disciples worship Christ? <clears throat> was it that they were better than the guards? No way. No way. Turn back to Luke chapter 24 again. And I want you to look at verse 16. It says in verse 16, But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know Him. Then look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they knew Him. God in His mercy was drawing these people. He was opening their eyes. This is something that David prays for, even as a believer, over and over in the Psalms. Lord, open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things out of Your law, so that we don't see it as a dead letter, so that Your Word speaks to us, so that we can relate to You and realize You are the God who has given us these things. Lord, open our understandings. Apart from God's grace, there are shades on our eyes that hinder us from seeing spiritual reality. Take a look at verse 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us on the road and while He opened the Scriptures to us? And so God not only opened their eyes and opened the Scriptures to them, but He opened their hearts and warmed their hearts to the Scriptures, united their hearts to Himself. Look at verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. When we see all that happened and had to happen to the disciples who are believers, when we see what had to happen to them before they would believe, it should not surprise us the reaction of the guards because they had not had hearts that had been touched. They had not had eyes that had been opened to see spiritual realities. They had not had hearts that had been changed to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. And apart from God's grace working in our hearts, every one of us would react just like those guards uh, reacted. The guards didn't need more evidence. They had plenty of evidence. What they needed was changed hearts. And this morning, if your eyes have been opened to love our Lord and to serve Him, to follow after Him, let it cause you to just say, Lord, thank you so much, because I know in myself I could not do that. I know it's all of your grace. As Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, That's the only way any of us could be saved. How in the world could an entire city of Nineveh become genuine believers? And Christ in the Gospels indicates they were genuine believers. Everyone in that city. You couldn't do it apart from salvation belonging to the Lord. Him opening our hearts. How could I believe, you know, with my hard heart, apart from God's grace working in me? Romans 1 tells us that God has placed within the heart of every man, woman, and child a knowledge of the law. That means every man, woman, and child knows what's right and knows what's wrong, but they still do what's wrong. 
He is placed within them a knowledge that God exists. In fact, He has placed so many evidences in creation that God exists that they're left without any excuse. And yet, what do people do according to Romans? They suppress that knowledge of God. They put it down. They don't want to think about God. And they don't want to think about His law because it makes them feel bad. Apart from grace, every one of us would listen to this sermon and come away from this sermon just with life as usual, not having been affected at all by the Word of God. It's God's grace and God's grace alone that can bring revival into a church, that can change us and make us desire to follow after Him with all of our hearts. In fact, when I realize how easy it is for a Christian to be hardened in heart as those disciples were, it makes me daily want to cry out to God, Lord, please, don't let me stumble. I've seen so many pastors stumble into sin. I've seen so many others. You've said in Jude, you can keep us from stumbling. And Lord, I need Your grace every day. I don't want to wander away from You. But you know, at the same time, when I see the power of God's grace to overcome the hardness of heart, it makes me not want to give up on people either when I'm praying for their salvation. God is powerful and He can open the eyes just like that if it is His choice to do so. Romans 3, again, there is none who seeks after God. Uh, Christ told the Pharisees in John 8, verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Men do not need more evidence. That's what some people think. If we just got enough good evidence, these people would become believers. You know what? I know of um, a Jewish professor in uh, California, one of the universities in California, who through his research has publicly stated that he believes that there's just clear, clear evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. But that has not made him want to follow after Christ. And when I read about that, it just blew me away. But here's a guy who's incredibly bright. He's convinced Jesus has rose from the dead. But instead of falling down and worshiping Christ, you know what his reaction was? He said, oh, a lot of other strange things have happened in this universe too. Who cares? It didn't make him believe. It didn't make him submit to Christ. He knows Christ was raised, but it had no impact upon his life. <clears throat> That's hardness of heart speaking. You see, salvation is not the case of the Valencians following a corpse into battle. That professor knows Christ was not a corpse. He came out of the tomb, but he has no intention of following Christ into the battle anyway. Polls have shown that 72% of Americans say they believe the Bible is the Word of God. Now, I just find that staggering. <laughs> it sure doesn't show, does it? Polls have shown 51% say they believe in the full authority of the Bible. 69% say they believe in the divinity of Christ. But only 36% prayed regularly. Only 10% saw themselves as, quote, highly spiritually committed. And for most of those people... A belief in those doctrines has had absolutely no impact upon their lives. Their lives have not been changed. They are no more saved than those guards were saved. You see, those guards believed Christ rose from the dead, didn't he? They believed it. But it had no impact upon their lives. Did you realize that Scripture uh, several times indicates there are people who believe in Christ and are not saved? Because there are different kinds of faith. There is saving faith and there is non-saving faith. John 6, verse 44 indicates, No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so the question is, has your heart been drawn to God? Has your heart been drawn? There is a, this is the, really the difference between the disciples and the guards. One group saw the evidence and yet were not drawn by the Father with the cords of love. Uh, to Christ. The other group saw the same evidence, was drawn by the Father to love Christ, to bow before Him, to embrace Him, to want to serve Him and to obey Him, uh, to fall down as Thomas did and say, my Lord and my God, to personalize the resurrection and make it theirs. And so my question this morning is, what is your reaction to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? After hearing God's Word, is it life as usual? Or really didn't have any impact upon you? Or is there a personal encounter with the risen, living Lord that has transformed you and made you want to serve Him? Has your heart been drawn to Him? Some of you young people have never even thought remotely of questioning the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. You probably believe all of the catechism questions that are in the shorter catechism. That's not a question. You say, yeah, yeah, I believe all of that stuff. But can you honestly say that you have a heart for Christ? Can you honestly say, yes, my heart has been drawn to Christ. I love Him. I want to submit to Him. I want to serve Him with everything that I have. Perhaps the only reason that you come to church is because your parents make you come to church. Perhaps the only reason that you're keeping God's laws outwardly is because it's a little bit easier to do that than to break those laws. But has God given to you a love for His holy law that David had where he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. Uh, obviously, um, I think most of you, if not all of you, would never make the lie that those guards did and say, Oh yeah, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. His, his um, apostles came and stole His body. But here's the question you need to ask yourself. Is my life a lie? Do I claim that Jesus Christ is my Lord, but I refuse to let Him tell me what to do? Say, hands off on this area of my life. Yeah, Lord, You can tell me what to do over here, but not over here. That is living a lie. <clears throat> and don't think that He will let us off any easier than the guards. There's no way. God says the opposite is true. To whom much is given, much will be required. And so perhaps like those guards, you know about Christ, but you never come to know Him personally. Those who know Christ personally have a confidence that Christ not only rose from the dead, but He rose on their behalf and that He is empowering them to live their lives to His glory. Those who know only about Him have a misplaced hope. It's really the hope of the Valencians who are following after a corpse. It's imperative, imperative that you know the difference between a dead faith and a living faith. Faith is the key that gets us into the door of heaven, but faith is also the key that enables us to live our lives here by His power, not just in our own fleshly strength. Faith has a lot of counterfeits. And my keychain, I've got three keys I always get confused with because they look almost identical. And so I try to put them into different positions, but there's only one of these that lets me into my office. The others... <laughs> don't work, even though they look very, very similar. And that's the way it is with faith. There is uh, true saving faith, and then there are counterfeit faiths that uh, many people think is saving faith, but is not. 
They're just simply historical faith. Some people believe in Jesus as a historical person. They say, sure, I believe in Christ. Just like I believe in George Washington, that he was a historical person. But it's not made a difference in their lives. Uh, James says this, You believe there is one God? You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. And he's saying that with a touch of irony right there. He's in effect saying, so what? <laughs> what difference has that made between you and the devils? You know, that is not a saving faith to believe that God exists. That is not going to save. Now, there are others who have a little bit more of a personal uh, trust in Christ and perhaps they will say, Lord, my finances are a disaster. Please help me. Whenever they're in trouble, they pray. And they say, Lord, I'm giving you my wallet. And I really want you to help me out. And there's other people, you know, who will say, Lord, uh, please help me out in my studies. I'm taking an exam this uh, week and I, I just don't know that I'm ready for it. Please help me out there. Or help me when I'm flying on the airplane. This is my United uh, Mileage Plus card. And there's nothing wrong with those things. I pray every time the plane takes off and every time it lands. Uh, <laughs> now, I don't act nervous. Everybody around me thinks uh, I'm just confident as could be. But yeah, I pray about those things. But those are not saving faith. Now, I think it springs from a saving faith. But many people who are not saved can have exactly the same kinds of prayers. I mentioned earlier that there are a number of scriptures that indicate that people can believe in Christ and yet not be saved. Let me just read you one example. It's in John 2, last couple of verses. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. That was the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. That's exactly the same word for believe, pistuo. Jesus did not believe in them. Because he knew all men. So here are people who are members of the church who believe in Christ, but Christ does not believe in them. He won't commit himself to them. Why? Because all they have is a temporal, historical faith. What is unique to all of the expressions of faith that I have listed here is that they're historical. Traveling faith, financial faith, historical faith, healing faith. But saving faith is different. D. James Kennedy likens it to sitting in a chair. Now, I can have faith, believe that that chair can hold me up. But if I'm not sitting in the chair, I'm not exercising my faith. It's just a historical faith. OK, I believe it could hold me up and I might be even more personal. I might even say, uh, you know, I'm going to pray to the Lord for my finances and put my finances on Christ. But I'm still not sitting on the chair I'm not committing my life to him. I might put my keys on there. And uh, when I'm traveling, I might pray like crazy, you know, and uh, with my studies, I can put all kinds of things on that chair. That's historical faith. But D. James Kennedy points out it's not until I get up off of the chair of trust in my own self efforts, trust in my own good works, because there's no way our works would ever get us to heaven. It's not until I get off the chair of trusting my relationships to good people or my church attendance or any of those things. And I come and I put myself completely upon Christ and I say, Lord, I'm following you with all of my life. I want to serve you, but I know I can only do it in your strength. So I'm depending on you. I'm resting upon you. 
And I'm trusting you not only historically, but for all of eternity to save me. If you've never done that, I urge you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let the Scriptures cause you to embrace the risen and the living Lord and to worship Him and to cry out with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that each and every one in this room would come to have more than just a historical faith in You, but that they would put their full, complete trust upon You and uh, find Your salvation. Have the key that gets them into the gate of heaven. Lord, I pray there would be none who would leave here without uh, searching more if they still have questions and asking. Father, I pray that from the youngest to the oldest, each of us, would know Christ, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings. Father, may we not go through any trial that Rodney spoke of earlier on our own, but may we go through that trial with the fellowship of Christ being with us. May we not go through any work without experiencing the, the fellowship and the power of His resurrection. Father, be with us as Your people. Minister to us. And make us to be consistent with the profession we have professed. We love you. We bless you. And we just glory in the fact that Christ has not only been raised from the dead, but that He is seated at your right hand. He is ruling over the nations. And by faith, we believe that. Even though there are so many things that are topsy-turvy, you are invincibly advancing the cause of your kingdom. And thank you, Father, that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are a part of the advancement of that kingdom. Help us to abide in Christ by faith through prayer. Help us, Lord, not to work in our own arm of flesh, but to produce fruit through the sap that comes through Christ. Strengthen us to glorify Your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.